Good morning. Welcome to our Good Friday service. Uh, you'll understand what I mean in just a minute. We are glad that you're here. We've got a couple announcements that we want to mention before we get into the lesson for today. If you're visiting with us, we are especially pleased that you're here and hope that you've found an opportunity to meet new friends, renew old friendships and acquaintances, and hope that we have the opportunity to see you again. Um, we are continuing to collect items for Bahamas, and uh, those items are listed in the bulletin as well as on our website, or you can see them here. Uh, as we get reports from the Bahamas, we try and adjust the, um, uh, the, the list. We are also continuing to receive monies that uh, will be uh, designated for uh, uh, relief in, in the Bahamas with different congregations in different areas. And so please continue to not only pray, but also to work and, uh, and, and offer out of the abundance of what we have, what we can do to help our brothers and sisters uh, on the islands there. Uh, next Sunday will be a picnic for the uh, K through second. So if you happen to be in that group, this is especially of notice to you, but anyone is invited. Uh, you can bring something, and uh, if you're bringing something good, let me know, and I might stay. Um, but uh, um, uh, all are invited to, to join the uh, children's ministry, Julie and, and the gang, out there at the pavilion to enjoy just a time of fellowship, of uh, letting kids run and play and be kids, and uh, letting the parents uh, enjoy some uh, adult conversations. Um, coming up soon, we're already in October, October 27th, we will have our fall festival. That will begin at 5 o'clock on Sunday afternoon, so be making plans. I know there's already uh, plans in the works for the trunk or treat and the different vehicles and the different kinds of activities, so uh, go ahead and save this date, get it on your calendar, and uh, and, and look. we look forward to uh, to that particular moment. As many of you are aware, our sister Bessie Abad passed away over the weekend. Um, uh, Bessie uh, was a part of this family for years and worked as one of the secretaries and uh, faithful attendants with her, her husband, and that was her sister Sonia. And so the, um, the arrangements will be for uh, tomorrow evening, uh, visitation beginning at 5 o'clock through 11 uh, we'll have a service around 7.30 or 8, and it is at the Caballero Rivero uh, funeral home that's on basically 117th and 117th, uh, 11655 Southwest 117th Avenue, uh, and that will be tomorrow evening. So um, you can call the church office if you need additional information, but that's where uh, the service uh, for, for Bessie uh, will be tomorrow. One of the things that I enjoy most about this auditorium and preaching in this auditorium is the light, the natural light that comes in. If you travel much uh, or if you visit churches much, you'll realize that that's not a common thing. 
Most worship leaders like to have 100% full control of the lighting because there's so much you can do with moods and atmosphere uh, by dimming lights and by putting on the full lights. But but uh, we're, we're blessed to have the opportunity and the ability to enjoy daylight and sunlight. You know, we all want light. It gives us a sense of security. Um, we have numerous night lights around our home um, just in case someone wakes up in the middle of the night and decides to change the furniture, at least some of us will be prepared. Um, we, we want life to be sunny and pleasant. Uh, Catherine and I are enjoying watching the documentary on PBS uh, um, about country music. And uh, um, in the edition or the, uh, the, 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 um, the episode that we saw recently, um, the Carter family uh, two sisters and a brother were singing, keep on the sunny side, keep on the sunny side, keep on the sunny side of life. You know, that song was actually in a number of hymn books years and years ago. And, uh, and that's kind of how we like to view life. Um, I've even had people come up to me and ask me how I'm doing, and they will answer the question. Hey, how you doing? Good, right? You're doing everything good? Everything good, right? Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. And, and w- there's this desire for everything to be good and sunny and pleasant. But we realize that in the dark, some of the worst, most tragic, horrific things happen. It was at night that a Dallas police officer off-duty entered into an apartment of a Church of Christ brother and song leader wonderful, wonderful young man, and killed him. Many of the things that happen that cause us fear take place at night, so we avoid areas that are not well lit. Oddly enough, God does some of his best work at night. (laughs) As we go back through Scripture, when Jesus walked on water and stilled the storm, that was in the middle of the night. When Jesus taught Nicodemus and told him about being born again, that was late at night. When Jesus gathered his disciples together to share an evening meal that would later be known as the Last Supper and the precursor to our Lord's Supper, that meal took place at night. Even the resurrection took place in the early mornings before daybreak. Just before the sun came up, it was still night. And so while we fear the night and avoid it at pretty much all costs, God continues to work. We're nearing the end of our journey in Mark. Um, Next week will be the last lesson in this series. Uh, Next week we will not be celebrating Christmas in July we will be celebrating Easter in October. Uh, and so that's why today is, for all practical purposes, uh, Good Friday. And that's the text for today. Before we get to the dawning of a new day, we have to pass through a dark, dark night. And while in traditional our traditional assemblies we don't give much time to Good Friday, we don't typically have a Holy Week series where we come together on a Friday evening to remember 
and to celebrate and to reflect and meditate on Jesus' work. We don't have a service on Saturday. In a sense, today we will do that. And this week will be the week of Saturday as Jesus is in the tomb. So what we're going to do is we're going to read through the text of Mark chapter 15, verses 33 through 47, through the rest of that chapter. You can follow along in your Bibles, on your phones, or you can read with me. What I'm going to do is to read and then make some observations, and then after the reading, I will have a a word of encouragement. The text begins in Mark 15, verse 33. This is the New Living Translation. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. It was perhaps a sunny day, and everyone's attention was focused on the three men on three crosses. And that at noon, all of a sudden, everyone stopped looking at them and turned to look at the sun, because it had become darkened. And this wasn't a passing cloud. It wasn't an eclipse that might last just for a few moments. This darkness and the tenseness that darkness in the middle of the day would bring would last for three hours. And then in the middle of that darkness, after three hours, a voice is heard, a shout a cry, a prayer. In the Gospel of Mark, this is the only thing Jesus says from the cross. You've heard sermon series, perhaps, of the seven words of the cross. Jesus says seven things while on the cross. In the Gospel of Mark, he says just this. He cries out and says in Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We'll say a little bit more about this text later. Some of the bystanders misunderstood, as it would be easy for us to misunderstand had Mark not told us what it meant, and, and they thought he was calling for the prophet Elijah because of the Aramaic word Eloi. And one of them ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and holding it up for Jesus to drink. Wait, he said, let's see whether Elijah comes to take him down. And then Jesus uttered another loud cry and breathed his last. The text wants to make sure we understand that Jesus didn't go quietly and softly. He didn't just fade off. It seems to be a deliberate intent to show that what he was doing was intentional, was deliberate, and he was well within his awareness of what was happening. And at that point, when he breathed his last, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. There were two curtains in the temple, one before you entered into the holy place, and there was another curtain before you entered into the most holy place. 
That space was reserved for the high priest once a year, and most believe this was that curtain that was torn. And there's different ideas of what this means, but one of the things that it communicates is now there's nothing that stands between us and God. And there's nothing that stands between God and us. When the Roman officer who stood facing him saw how he had died, this Roman centurion, leader of a hundred men, said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. This pagan soldier, who perhaps only knew of Jesus during these days of his trial is the only human being to make this declaration and recognition that Jesus is the Son of God in the Gospel of Mark. God himself mentions that Jesus is his Son in his baptism. This is my beloved Son. Also in the Mount of Transfiguration, God speaks and says, This is my Son. Beyond the opening words of the Gospel of Mark in verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1, stating that that's what this book is about, Jesus the Son of God, the only other beings who recognize Jesus' identity are demons. No human being other than this Roman soldier recognized who Jesus was. This Roman soldier is the first of three groups of people that were around the cross at the time of Jesus' death. Some women were there as well, watching from a distance. And in this group of women, we don't know how many, but there were included Mary Magdalene, who had been freed from various demons, Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph, and Salome. I think it's interesting that Mark wants us to know that these were the ones who stayed close. And up to this point, we have a pagan Roman soldier and women. Mark makes no mention of the male disciples. And we see the women and their faith were willing to risk what some men were not and there was this comment about the women. They had been followers of Jesus and had cared for him while he was in Galilee. Many other women who had come with him to Jerusalem were also there. Again, no mention of male disciples. This all happened on Friday, the day of preparation, the preparation for the Sabbath, the day before the Sabbath. And as the evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea took a risk. He went boldly, took a chance at being identified with Jesus and went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Mark explains that Joseph was an honored member of the high council, the Sanhedrin, and he was waiting for the kingdom of God to come, perhaps in secret the Jewish tradition was not to allow any bodies to be on crosses during, during the Passover and during the Sabbath. And so typically they would break the legs of the individual so that their death could be hurried. 
But when Joseph went and said that Jesus was already dead, he couldn't believe it, so he called for this Roman officer and asked if it was true. And the Roman officer confirmed that Jesus was dead. So Pilate told Joseph he could have the body. This was unusual for a number of reasons, but the most significant was that in those days, people who were crucified received no attention. They were unmercifully removed from the cross and thrown into an unknown grave. These were individuals that the government wanted to be removed and forgotten. I don't know if you've ever visited a pauper's grave or a pauper's cemetery. Catherine and I went in our ministry in Memphis with a young couple who had a stillborn baby. And they didn't have money for a funeral. And so they were notified that they could go to the place where those remains would be found So we went. It was no marked sign, no indication that that's what this was. Just turn off of a dirt road and there's this open field. You couldn't even see any kinds of markers. And as you walked, you realized that they were letters that would indicate the rows. And then you counted over and there was just a small little metal tab that had a number on it. And that number was the deceased. And so we took flowers. We took a cross and remembered their baby. That's where Jesus would have ended up, in a pauper's cemetery, thrown like a piece of trash. And Joseph and other believers, I'm sure, said that won't happen on our watch. And so he took the body, took a long sheet of linen. We call it a shroud nowadays. (laughs) A long sheet of linen and they took, or he took Jesus' body down from the cross, wrapped it in the cloth and laid it in a tomb that had been carved out of rock. And then he rolled a stone in front of the entrance. This was what was typically done for family members, special people. This is how you would treat a loved one who had passed. And so Jesus' body is placed in the tomb. The stone is rolled in front. And again, Mark tells us that Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, saw where Jesus' body was laid. And that's where he'll be from Friday evening until Sunday. Perhaps the most striking thing, uh, there are a number of things that draw our attention, but for me the most striking thing is this cry, this prayer. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is quoting Psalm 22. And a paraphrase of those verses might be something like, God... Where are you when I need you most? Psalm 22 would have been part of the collection of psalms that children would have learned by memory from childhood up. It it talks about an innocent sufferer 
It speaks of someone who has to endure torment and abuse that is undeserved, and it's a cry to God for salvation, for rescue. The elements mentioned in that psalm, and I encourage you to read Psalm 22 this afternoon, talk about the abuse that Jesus endured, how they cast lots for his clothes. Jews had been reading this psalm whenever they faced difficult, painful, anguishing moments. And much like all of us, when we just can't think straight, we go back to what we know. And Jesus uses this psalm to express his feeling. You know, it's one thing for you and me to recognize that God is way up there and we're way down here. But but to hear these words on the lips of the very Son of God are jarring, to say the least. I mean, Jesus had said openly and repeatedly, the Father and I are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus has demonstrated that he and the Father were so united, they were never apart, and yet now he's crying out to ask for the Father's presence. It seems that there is this gap. And as we watch God die on the cross I want to suggest that maybe something else needs to die on that cross. Because when we look at Jesus, we see literally the best person in all of history hung in shame, in humiliation, in agony for all the world to see. And what we don't see is God running to remove him or to save him. We don't see God rescuing Jesus from the agony of the cross. Whether the disciples truly understood this is where Jesus was going, we we can discuss. But once they realized what was happening and where this was going... Don't you imagine they would have offered prayer after prayer after prayer? How many prayers did Mary offer? God, save my son. Save your son. Jesus himself, even though we like to sing, he could have called 10,000 angels. Jesus himself didn't call down either angels nor fire. Because this was the cup that he was struggling to pick up in the garden. This was the cup that he was so challenged with that led him to fall on his face in prayer for hours to beg God to find another way. Jesus knew That once he took the sins of humanity upon himself, 
the road that he would be walking would lead him to a very, very dark place. The Bible refers to this place as Hades. Now, in the English language, we typically use a word hell to describe everything, both neutral and bad. In in Scripture, there are two different words. One is Gehenna, which is the place outside Jerusalem where the trash was burned. It was this burning heap of rubbish. That's like the lake of fire, of judgment and condemnation. The other word was Hades, which simply referred to the place of darkness, of death, the grave. So Jesus didn't go to hell, the place of condemnation, but he did go to Hades. Apparently, God has a different idea about what it means to be victorious. God has a different idea of what it means to be powerful, what it means to be strong. To achieve his victories, God doesn't use the weapons that you and I would use, either offensively or defensively. This God doesn't share our sentimental notions of love with hearts and smiley faces. This God is not afraid to isolate himself and to enter into the world of pain. I I don't know if we can truly grasp how monumental it is to be with a God who is willing to die and experience death and darkness and the grave for our benefit. This is a God so great and so strong that he is not threatened by words like, Where are you? What are you doing? I don't think God is threatened by our pleas and our expressions of not understanding, our cries for justice, our desire for right to be done. This is a God who's so strong that we can hurl the strongest words in our vocabulary and he doesn't flinch. And he doesn't run. And I think part of our challenge in today's world is, if we're going to be just brutally honest, at our core, deep down, it's a sacrilegious to say, deep down, we think we know better than God about what our lives need. God, take care of this. This isn't right. I don't need this in my life. Our our prayers reveal an idolatrous undertone. And what we're actually praying in many cases, not in every, what we're praying is, God, may my will be done in heaven, not God's will on earth. 
We pray because God isn't acting. We pray because God doesn't see. We pray because God is slow. And in the back of our minds, the back of our heart, we think, if we were God, there wouldn't be all this suffering. If we were God, we would be much more compassionate and caring, considerate. If we were God, we wouldn't let Botham genes the Botham genes of this world, be murdered. We wouldn't allow so much injustice or suffering and tragedy. So when we pray, God, why have you forsaken us? God, where are you? What we're really saying is, God, you're falling down on your job. And Jesus gives us words. To cry out and say, that's okay. In the midst of your pain, in the midst of your agony, when you don't know how to take one step in front of another, God is so great that he hears and tolerates and puts up with our petty notions of what is right. And I think as I look at the cross and I contemplate Jesus dying on the cross, one of the things that I realize is that there's something else that needs to die on that cross, and that's my image of a good and perfect and God who kind of looks like me. We want God to be the God of power, force, violence, shock and awe. And what we see is a God who submits and a God who is humble and a God who sacrifices. A God who allows himself to be mistreated, to receive the nasty, horrible treatment that others deserved. And as Jesus goes into this underworld, this dark world of Hades, the world of the dead, the only thing that he looks forward to is hope that God won't forget him there. And Jesus shows us what it looks like to hope in God, to trust in him, To take a risk of putting our faith in him, knowing that things might not go like we want. But God will show up. And ultimately, like Psalm 22 ends, ultimately we will rejoice. It might not be in this life and on this earth, but we will rejoice. Jesus risked his very nature and existence to be with us. This is a God who so desperately wanted to connect with you that he was willing to go where only we would go. He was willing to go to, if you will, hell and back for our sake. And so as Jesus dies on the cross today, on Friday in Scripture, 
alongside him must die my idea of a nice and tame and domesticated God. Because that's not the God of the scriptures. And that wasn't and isn't the God of Jesus. My inadequate, insufficient, incomplete, egocentric ideas of God have to die on that cross. There's one other thing that needs to die on that cross, and that's me. I have to join Jesus as he joined me to take me back from the world of the grave, so I join him. And Paul says, Galatians 2, I've been crucified with Christ. I climbed up the cross. Romans 6 says that we are united with Jesus in his death and his burial through baptism. Paul says in Romans, uh, Philippians 3, I want to experience the mighty power that raised Jesus from the dead. And the only way to experience is to experience the suffering and the sharing in his death so that I can then experience the resurrection. We've already thought about Jesus' death and participating with his body and blood through the Lord's Supper. Most of us have made the decision to be baptized and to join Jesus. The decision to get on the cross is a decision that Luke tells us we make every single day. So today on Good Friday in the religious calendar in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has died. On that cross next to him are my weak, weak images of what God should be and what God should do. And also next to him is me and you. If we can help you share in that death so that you can also be raised, we would love to do so. If we can pray with you at this dark, dark moment in your life, we would be honored to do so. If the cry in your heart is, my God, my God, you are crying to one who hears and who knows and will answer. If we can pray with you, please come as we stand and sing. There's a fountain